And good morning, he is risen. <laughs> Amen. Praise God. Please be seated. And if you're new here today, if this is your first time at Calvary Chapel, welcome. We are so blessed that you joined us today. And for all of you in the video venues in the family room, God bless you. Thank you for coming out today as we celebrate the greatest day in history, the most glorious day and all that it means. Amen. Praise the Lord. If you have a Bible with you today, please take it out and open it up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. If you didn't bring a Bible, please grab one from under a seat close by in front of you, Matthew 27. And if you don't own a Bible, take that one home with you after the service. We have been studying for, man, 15, 16 months now as a, as a church, the Gospel of Matthew, the life of Jesus. And as, as God would have it, his providence, we happen to be on the very section in Matthew that we celebrate today, the resurrection of Jesus. And we've been looking at specifically over the last few weeks of, of the, the last few hours of Jesus' life, the, the very intimate and personal time that he poured into his disciples, preparing them for not only this, but what would be coming after. And we looked at his, his betrayal his arrest, his trials, and his crucifixion, his death on the cross on our behalf. And this morning, we pick up at the, at the end of chapter 27, beginning with verse 57, as it is left off there with Jesus on the cross, the Roman centurions, even the ones that were placed there to take care of the execution, even proclaiming truly this was the Son of God, it says in verse 57, Matthew 27, verse 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered that it be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir... We remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, so go make it as secure as you know how. We, we look at this as the beginning and the introduction to where we go in chapter 28, and it's important to understand when Pilate said this, you have a guard, he wasn't dismissing them, saying you have your own guards. No, what he was saying, that word that's used there is specifically used for a detachment of Roman soldiers. And the, it's, it's interesting, the uniqueness of that word that's used, it means either 4, 8, 12, or 16 Roman soldiers in groups of four so that when they would fight, they would fight in a square formation. So nobody's back was uncovered, very strategic, but it's done that way. And that, that's the, what is being said here. 
So there is a detachment of Roman soldiers given to these religious leaders to go and guard Jesus' tomb. And we're going to look at that in a little bit. But I want to make sure that you understand that this is, there, is, there is a great effort being placed to make sure that the body of Jesus stays inside the tomb. And they went and made the grave secure along with the guard, and they set a seal on the stone. The seal then that was placed there, again, a Roman seal. And with that seal from the Romans said, if you break this seal, you are standing in defiance against Rome. So again, everything being done to make sure that that body stays inside that tomb. But guess what? Chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, that is, it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came down and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was as lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. Imagine the scene. It's still dawn, it's still dark out. These four guards that are still sitting there, maybe warming by a fire, and all of a sudden... The earth shakes, this massive glow white comes, and here's this angel, rolls a stone away and sits down on top of it, and it says they were so filled with fear that they fell down to the ground, basically fainting, their bodies just totally giving out from underneath them. These ladies who had come and were there, it says, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I love that, by the way. The angel, this awesome figure that is there, says to the women, hey, don't be afraid. But almost saying to the soldiers, yeah, you guys be very afraid. (laughs) As they're sitting there just trembling in goo, they're saying, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And he says why. He goes, don't be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who's been crucified, but he's not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come, see the place where he was lying. Here we see that the angel didn't roll the stone away to let Jesus out. He rolled the stone away to let the women come in and see that the body's not there. He's no longer here. He is risen just as he said. And he goes, he gives them directions now, verse 7, go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to the disciples. And behold, verse 9, Jesus met them and greeted them and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Important, Jesus wasn't just raised in spirit. He wasn't an apparition. His physical body, they grabbed a hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. There it is again. Don't be, do not fear. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. Now while they were on their way, verse 11, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests what had happened. They didn't go to their boss. They went to the chief priests. If they go to their boss, bad things happen. If they go to their boss and say, yeah, you know what? That one job we were given to do, make sure that body didn't come out, it did. The one thing we were sent to do, we failed. That would mean at best they lose their job, but probably they lose their life. So they don't go to their boss. They go to the chief priests and tell them what happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers 
and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did just as they had been instructed, and the story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. <laughs> Here we see the word of God telling us what happened that glorious morning, the resurrection morning that we celebrate, what's called, commonly called Easter. Now there are a ton of misconceptions and misunderstandings and misstatements about Easter, about the meaning of Easter, what it's all about. Maybe there was a, a group of children one time in a class, and the teacher asked them what the meaning of Easter is. And this little boy in the back shot his hand up, and he says, I know, I know. She called on him, and he said, it's, it's every, it happens every November. We all get together with family, and we eat turkey, and we watch football, and we, we remember the, the first dinner where the pilgrims and the Indians ate together, and the teacher said, no, 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 that's, that's Thanksgiving. Another child raises his hand. She calls on him, and he says, I know, I know. It happens every December, and all the family comes in from out of town, and grandma and grandpa come, and we sit around a tree, and we open presents, and we remember that, that that's when Jesus was born, and the teacher says, no, sweetheart, that's Christmas. Does anybody know what Easter is, what the meaning of Easter is? And this little girl in the back raises her hand, and she says, I know, it's, it's in the springtime. And it's when we remember that Jesus died on the cross and, and he was buried. And three days later, he came out of the tomb. And if he sees his shadow, there's six more weeks of winter. <laughs> Close. But a misunderstanding. The world has turned Easter into some sick celebration about an Easter who lays colored hard-boiled eggs and hands out chocolate to kids and gets in fights in the mall. Did you see that? This week in New Jersey, man, the throwdown with the Easter bunny and a dad. I mean, it... But is it any wonder why there's so many misunderstandings and misinformation that is spread around about the meaning of this day? I mean, if we really think about this as Christians and we look at this, is, should it surprise us at all? Because this day is the most significant day in all of history. There is so much riding on this. There is so much at stake. The question, did Jesus truly rise from the dead? We're not talking about resuscitation. We're not talking about reincarnation. We're talking about resurrection. Jesus, the Son of God, dying on a cross on our behalf, being laid in a tomb, dead, died, dead three days in the tomb, rising from the dead three days later. So much at stake with this. So much so that Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. Wow. If, he's, if he hasn't been raised from the dead... Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sin. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. All it would take is the body to be found. To be able to say, here's Jesus' body right here. He didn't rise from the dead. And all of Christianity goes away. It goes away in a moment. 
Back then, if the body could have been produced, Christianity would have never started. It's all based on that. He suffered and died in our place, but without the resurrection, again, as Paul says, our faith is worthless. So when we look at this, and we look at this even in a, like a court setting, there is no serious, credible argument against the historicity of Jesus that he actually existed. Nobody in any type of serious debate can say, Jesus, there's no proof that he ever really even existed. People do say that, but it's, it's ridiculous. There, is, there are mountains of evidence outside of the Bible that Jesus actually lived. And there's really no rational argument to say that he didn't die by crucifixion. Again, many sources outside of the Bible tell us that this Jesus died by crucifixion at the hands of the Romans. And there's really no logical argument that could say that the tomb wasn't empty three days later. Because as I said, that's all it would take. Christianity would have been over faster than it started if, the, if there's a body in the tomb. So three facts that we have. Jesus lived, Jesus died on the cross, and the tomb is empty. The question becomes, how did the tomb become empty? And again, the world has come up with all sorts of, of possibilities, and, and, we, and, we, and we can look at a couple of them. One says that, that they crucified the wrong man. It wasn't really Jesus that was on the cross. It was somebody else looked a lot like Jesus, but it wasn't really him. And that, that was started, and the only reason I bring that up is because the second largest religion in the world, that's what they teach. That's, that's the teaching of Islam. But that was started 600 years after the fact. How many of you, if you're going to do a research project, start researching things that happened 600 years later? You go back to the original sources, would you not? Back to that day. Another theory it's called the swoon theory. Maybe you've heard of that. If you haven't, this is what they claim. That Jesus, after being scourged... Now, the Bible, the Bible tells us that, it, that Jesus was scourged, but goes into no other detail from that. But we know from history what scourging was. It was, it was the ultimate form of punishment and torture... It, it, the cat of nine tails, it was a whip that had strips of leather attached to it. But at the end of the strips of leather, there were pieces of bone and glass and metal. And it was designed not to be like a normal whip that just went across the body. It was designed to dig into the flesh. And it wasn't the initial, the initial hit that was the problem. It's when they pulled it away, tearing away the flesh. 39 lashes with that. Many men died just from the scourging. And those that survived, many of them had their internal organs exposed by this process and the massive amount of blood loss that is there. The, the swoon theory would tell you that Jesus went through that, then was nailed to the cross and, and hung there for six hours, then had a Roman spear thrust into his side and into his heart because after they pulled it out, blood and water came out. Then he was wrapped in, in, in burial cloths, placed in a tomb, and then a stone rolled in front. And these stones are massive. Usually it takes four or five men to move them. And then somehow, because of the cool, fresh air, damp air, whatever, in the tomb that Jesus came to, 
took the grave clothes off, rolled that stone from the inside away and tiptoed past the soldiers. That's, that's that argument. <laughs> There's another one that's brought that says that it was the wrong tomb that they went to on Easter morning. They buried him in this one. They came back in all of the confusion and all of their, their anguish and everything, and they went to this one. And, oh, it's empty. Look, he's, he's... Really? In 2,000 years, nobody bothered to look next door. <laughs> the one that has gained most traction and the one that was used even into the middle second century is the one that's laid out here for us in the text that the the religious leaders came up with, and I might point out, came up with before the resurrection and then used it afterwards, that the disciples stole the body. Now, if we're going to, again, look at this from a, a court setting, we'd say, okay, now what are, the, what are the possibilities of that actually happening? We know, as we studied before, that it's very likely that these disciples except for Peter. Peter maybe was in his early 20s. Most of them were 20 years old at the most, late teens, fishermen, a tax collector. These guys, 11 of them, are going to come up with this idea and this plan to pull off the theft of the century, the theft of all time, to sneak past these Roman soldiers whose life is on the line to make sure this doesn't happen, who've been warned ahead of time that this is what they're going to be trying to do. All of that, and we're supposed to believe that. But then let's look at what is their possible motive? What possibly is the motive of the disciples to do this? If they truly believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the one that was promised to come, their Messiah is now dead and lying inside of a tomb. They have to feel at least somewhat, were we mistaken? Is this really him? And then would they go forward with this and say, okay, we don't want to look foolish in front of everybody, so let's, let's go steal his body and we'll hide it somewhere and then we'll carry this on and, and start this big, this big movement that is going to not yield us a dime, that is going to cost every one of us our very lives, I mean, we look at this, every one of the disciples, except John, was martyred for this statement that he is alive, that he rose from the dead. All of the other things that they claimed about Jesus didn't matter. It's the resurrection that sets Christianity apart from everything else. They all went to their death. Not one single one of them recanted. Not one of them, when facing crucifixion themselves or other forms of torture and death, said, hang on, hang on, hey, wait, wait, wait. We buried the body, I'll show you where it is. None of them. We look at all of these, and those are, the, those are the most believable of what the world brings. But I would say that there's one that seems to me anyway that makes the most sense. That Jesus actually rose from the dead. When we, when we look at that and we provide, provide the evidence that is, that is here, we don't just need to say, okay, since there's no other option. There's evidence to this. And we can look even in our text right now. The enemies believed it. I think as we look at this, verse 62 and 63 of chapter 27, notice the, 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 the Pharisees gathered together. They go to Pilate and said, we remember 
that when he was still alive, he said, after three days, I will rise again. They heard that. They remembered that. The disciples didn't, but they did. (laughs) The disciples aren't the ones saying, remember, he said that in three days he'll rise again. None of them are saying it, but the enemies are. And I... I think anyway, based on the efforts that they went through with this, they weren't really scared of the disciples. Again, 11 teenagers, they aren't scared of that. They know that there is something about this Jesus. They know that. And so they're going to do everything possible to make sure that if Jesus does rise from the dead, he ain't coming out of that tomb. We're going to put Romans in front. We're going to put the seal on the stone. But we, it goes much further than that. As we continued and we looked, there's witnesses, eyewitnesses, first-hand witnesses, the women that go to the tomb. And they weren't going, again, they weren't going to say, you know, he said he was going to rise three days later. Let's go and meet him. They're going, not thinking about resurrection. They're going, thinking about preparing the body, the dead body. It tells us in other gospel accounts that they're carrying the spices for that and they're talking amongst each other, who's going to roll the stone away for us? Little did they know, there was, <laughs> that man was already dispatched, that angel was already on the way. But not just the women, the disciples. First-hand accounts. And not just the 11, by the way. Paul tells us again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that after Jesus appeared bodily, To the disciples and to Peter, it says that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. And he goes on to say, most of which are still alive today. You know what Paul's saying with that? He is saying that if you don't believe me, go ask them. There's over 500 of them. Not just a handful, not just a couple, over 500. They're still alive. Go check out the story. And Paul wrote that only 23 years after it happened. 23 years ago, Lee Jansen won the U.S. Open golf tournament. What if I were to tell you that that year I missed qualifying for the U.S. Open golf tournament by one stroke? And Lee Jansen saw me play and was so impressed he asked me to caddy for him during that U.S. Open. Now, based on the looks of some of you, you actually bought that. (laughs) But if you wanted to discredit that, what would you do? You'd go ask Lee Jansen, do you know Brett Berkson? He'd be like, what, who? You could go ask the guy who actually did caddy for him. He looks nothing like me. You could talk to any number of people that played golf with me 23 years ago to discredit that story. And that's all it would have taken. That's all it would have taken. God puts it in his word, 500. Just took one of them to say, that's not true. You see, I guess I want to make this point, first of all, to all of the believers in this room. Yes, we walk by faith. But it's not a blind faith. God never asks us to believe anything that is completely unreasonable. As a matter of fact, I would say that placing our trust in him is the most reasonable thing that we can do. 
I remember back when I was, you know, my kids were first learning how to swim. First learning how to even get into the pool, you know, where they got their big old floaties on and everything. I'd be in the water and I'd be saying, go ahead, jump in, trust me. If you're going to learn how to swim, if you're going to learn to trust to get in the water, there's nobody better to trust than me because I will die before I let you drown. Is there anything more reasonable than to trust God? But faith is irresponsible. It's empty if it's not based on truth. I mean, you can, you can believe all you want in, in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and all that sort of stuff, but it's, it's really irresponsible because it's not based in truth. And if the body was still in the grave, it would be very irresponsible for us to believe what we believe. But again, the grave is empty. And with all of this evidence that we see before us, we still walk by faith. But Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. It's the assurance. That word assurance means a structure, a foundation. Assurance, a foundation of things hoped for. That word hoped for isn't the word that the world uses for hope. It's a word that we exclusively as Christians use for hope. It means assurance. We can be assured of these things. Because we have evidence that as we step out in faith, that the Holy Spirit continues to reveal to us. We're all saved the same way, and it all requires faith. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We are, we're all saved the same way, but again, by faith. And as Christians, I would tell you again, don't, don't feel sorry for that. Don't apologize for that. Yes, it's by faith, but it's not a misplaced faith, and it's not a blind faith. A blind faith means you continually walk without being able to see. That's not what happens as we follow the Lord, is it? We might not know what that next step is, but as we take it, he illuminates it in front of us. That's not walking blindly. That's walking by faith. And as we walk by faith, I've heard it said this way, as we walk by faith, we see the invisible, we hear the inaudible, we comprehend the inconceivable, and we can do the impossible. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. But to those of you who are here today who might be skeptical, who are thinking, yeah, I hear all of that, but I, I still, th this whole idea of faith, I can't, I can't grasp that. I can't, I can't put my, 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 my arms around that. I just can't believe it. Too skeptical. And I, I understand there's part, parts of me that are skeptical about things too. But let me ask you a question. If that's you... Is there anything that you can be absolutely 100% certain of as a skeptic? Can you be absolutely certain that the world is over one year old? I mean, you might say, well, that's pretty dumb, of course. I mean, I'm already 30. So it has to be, I mean, it has to be over a year old. Well, let me ask you this question. 
What if six months ago we were all placed here with pre-programmed memories? Now, I know what you're thinking. I'm absolutely certain you're nuts. <laughs> but that's, my point isn't that that's what happened. <laughs> that's not what happened. This tells us what happened. But my point is that we all accept things on faith. And bottom line is, when we look at this, we need to ask the question, what is most plausible? <laughs> what is established with the most certainty? And I will tell you that if you have never taken that step, you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus, you've never come by faith, when you do, everything else is opened up. It all comes into place. You see, the truth of the matter is that Jesus is alive. God himself stepped out of heaven because he loved you so much. It tells us that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He came, he lived a perfect sinless life, and he died on the cross, suffering, paying the full penalty for our sins. As he hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. That means the payment was given in full. But the resurrection proves that that payment was received by the Father as payment in full, for our sin. Three days later, he rose again, and he's alive today. Now, as Christians, because of the resurrection, because the resurrection is true, we have assurances. There's assurances that we have. We are assured that our sins are forgiven. Again, it is finished. And the resurrection proves that it was received and the father was pleased with that offering of his, of his son's life on our behalf. Look at it this way. The cross was the payment. The resurrection was the paid in full receipt. We have the assurance our sins are forgiven. We have the assurance that our eternity is secure. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. We have assurance that our sin is forgiven. We have assurance that our future is secure. We have assurance that our enemy has been defeated. We all have a very real enemy. The Bible tells us that the, the, our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He hates you. But at the cross and through the resurrection, he has been defeated. We're no longer slaves to fear. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer slaves to death. We have been redeemed. We fight from a position of victory now because he lives, because he rose from the dead. We also have the assurance that because he rose from the dead, our king is alive and he compassionately understands us. Part of the process of him becoming one of us and living that perfect life is the fact that he lived the life 
and he experienced all of the things that you and I experience, but the Bible tells us he did so without sin. He went through all of the pain and all of the suffering and all of the hurt and the betrayal. Are you going through any of those things? He understands, compassionately understands, and he actively intercedes. The Bible tells us that he lives to make intercession for us. The king of kings is interceding on your behalf right now. He powerfully imparts, tells us that the same power that raised him from the dead abides in us. And he personally engages. The living, risen Lord personally engages in our lives. It tells us that he will never leave us or forsake us. So as we walk through the trials, as we walk through the difficulties, he is right there. Because he is risen, we have these assurances. But also, because he is risen, we need to look at the authority that he has. Not just the assurances that we have, the authority that he has. He goes on to say, in Matthew 28, toward the, at, the, at the end of the chapter, he says, All authority, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority is his. So I would ask you today, and I want to ask this of everyone in this room, have you ever fully submitted your life to the authority of Jesus Christ? The authority of the King of Kings. Have you ever submitted your life completely and fully to him? And if you haven't, I'd ask you the question, why not? Because again, there's nothing more reasonable than to submit your life to him and to trust him. You see, we are all all sinners. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but a death eternally that separates us from the love of God and we would face the wrath of God forever in hell. And there's no way that we can fix that on our own. And Jesus knew that. So he voluntarily stepped off his throne in heaven lived a perfect, sinless life, and died in our place. Why would you not trust your life to him? He gave his life for you. He's the creator of the universe. He is the sovereign king of all things. Why would you not place your life in his hands? Paul writes in Romans Chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation is available to everyone. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus, salvation is available to you today. But it says you must believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now that is going beyond just the step that, okay, you've proved it to me. It doesn't make any sense, anything else. He must have raised from the dead. It goes beyond that. Believing in your heart means that, that I am now going to turn from my life and turn to the Lord. It involves confession of sin. That we Again, I've, I have sinned against a holy and righteous God. But turning from that sin and turning to Jesus, trusting in his completed work on the cross, believing in the resurrection means I'm, I'm taking it all for me. 
his death on my behalf and the, the resurrection meaning that I believe that, it was, that, that that now makes me right with God. But it goes on and it says that we must confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. And that is again goes beyond just saying the words with our mouth. To confess means I agree with you, God. I agree that you are who you say you are. And I agree that I should submit and totally give you my life. If you haven't ever done that, I want to invite you to do that today. Would you please pray with me? Lord Jesus, we as believers here this morning, we, we praise you and we worship you and we stand again in awe of all that you did on our behalf. We celebrate today this glorious day and all that it means for us. We hold tightly to these assurances that we have. These aren't things that we, that we really wish someday that we will get. We stand in assurance knowing that these are ours because we belong to you and because you are alive. We have the assurance that our sins are forgiven. We have the assurance that our, that our future is secure. We have the assurance that our enemies have been defeated. And we have the assurance that you will always be with us. We thank you and we praise you for that fact. If you're here today and you have never taken that step, you've never trusted in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, I want to invite you to do something radical today. I want you to invite you to take a step of faith that you will never regret. I want to ask you in just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing, and I want to ask you to get out of your seat and to come forward. I want to pray with you up front here. And I know right now your heart's pounding because I've been there. I know right now you're thinking, man, I can't do that. What are people going to think? I can tell you right now that we will rejoice with the angels in heaven as you come forward to give your life to Jesus. If you can't do it here amongst a bunch of people who love you and have all been where you are, you can't do it anywhere. If you're here with someone and you're nervous about doing this alone, ask them to come up with you. They will. Would you please stand, everyone? If that is you, again, as we now sing, I would like to ask you to come forward. If you're in the family room and you have a child with you, bring your child. Come on. Come on up. If you're in one of the video venues, we have pastors and elders there. Just go forward with them. They will pray with you there. But if that is you, as we sing this song, I want to invite you again to step out in faith and to come forward and to ask Jesus to come into your life. Let's sing.